0: You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Would you open up your Bibles after you get done greeting to Hebrews chapter 8? Hebrews the chapter 8. Are you guys sitting with fun people? No? Yeah, you are. Hebrews chapter 8. Let's start in verse 7. All this month, we're talking about the book of Hebrews, and so uh, you should open up to the book of Hebrews. If you brought your Bible, hold it high. You're proud that you brought your Bible. You guys are nerds. You brought your Bible because you're nerds. If you didn't, if you didn't know that we like to bring our Bibles, there's a Bible on every table, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, you could steal that Bible. It's not stealing. I'm giving it to you. You could have it. It's a gift. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. This is about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in here, uh, chapter 8 of Hebrews, they're going to quote a passage from Jeremiah 31. Is Jeremiah in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Yeah, so it's the Old Testament. And it's the old way of doing things, saying that a new time is coming. So pay attention very closely. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, talking about the covenant in the Old Testament. No place would be, would have been sought for another, but God, God found fault with the people and said, and here's the quote from Jeremiah, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from the from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. That's where we're we're living now. The law of God is in our hearts. He's our God. We're his people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. Do you guys know the Lord? Yes, you do. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he made the first one obsolete. The Old Testament is obsolete, but we're going to talk about what role it plays today. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Let's pray and just thank God for being in here. Jesus, we do just thank you for opening our minds, opening our hearts this morning. God, we want to receive more of you as we study this book of the Bible, Hebrews, that correlates the Old Testament and the New Testament, God, we just pray for you to be in here in a new way. God, that we might open our hearts to you, open our minds and learn new things about you through the Mill Sunday School. And everybody said, amen. All right, everybody. um, This is the Mill Sunday School. If you're newish around here, we just welcome you. We apologize that we ran out of food. That's my bad. For some reason, everybody ravished the food today, but that's cool, you know, whatever. Um, We are, I joke around, but I'm not joking anymore. We are the nerds of the mill. Are you guys proud of that? Yes, I'm proud of that too. We like to go a little deeper into knowledge. And so this isn't really a sermon, this is more of a teaching. Do you know how you know? If there's a whiteboard, it's teaching. If there's no whiteboard and podium, it's preaching. And so this is more of a teaching kind of thing. It's it's kind of, we go a little deeper here than say, than say your average sermon would. We go a little deeper into the area of knowledge because we like to, because we're nerds. And so if you're a visitor with us, you don't have to be a nerd, but if you keep coming, I'm guaranteeing that you'll want to be a nerd like all of us. It's guaranteed. Let me tell you a story. Um, Would you like to hear a story about uh, atonement in in other religions? Um, Has anybody been to Tibet? A couple. You have been, really? Really? Yes. Um, Tibet's really cool. You really? Oh, with with furnace, huh? That's awesome. No, twenty four seven. That's right. Um, in Tibet, the, the religion there is Tibetan Buddhism. And if you go to Tibet, you will find that these people are very into um, kind of into this karma idea of make doing good things in order that when they die, they believe in reincarnation that they'll be in a better place after their die after they die. So when you're first born um, into this world, you might come as like a little ant, and then if you're a good ant you might come as like a a bee. And then if you're a good bee, then you might come back as a bird or something. I don't even know how it all works. But that's just how it works in their religion. And people are reincarnated too. And so if you're um, like a carpenter, your hope is that if you do enough good things and you overcome the bad mistakes and the sins that you've made as a Tibetan Buddhist, if you've overcome those with good works, then you could come back as a monk. And then if you're a monk, you can come back as like a high monk, like a leader monk. And then after that, their great hope is they, that they will become nothing. They will become like a drop of water in the ocean. And that's really, it's kind of a sad religion because there's no like, eternal destiny. There's no eternal life with God himself. It's just they hope to, to overcome the world and all its problems, all its wickedness by becoming nothing. It's kind of sad, don't you think? In some ways, sad. Um, and so what they do to overcome their sin, if they've made mistakes in life, and they, they would all say that they've made mistakes what they do is they do, um, they do good things and then acts to overcome the, the bad things that they've done. And one of the things that they do is they do prostrations. They bow before the temple because they believe that the gods live in the temple. And so they'll bow all the way down. Should I do it for you? I'm not bowing to you, by the way. I'm just showing you what they do. They get all the way down on their hands and knees like this. Then they go all the way out. So they're on their belly. Can you guys see me in the back? I'm all the way on my belly. And then they get all the way up, and they stand up, <laughs> and they bow to the temple again. One thou- a good monk, if you're a monk and you're a leader monk, you'll do 1,000 of those in one day. You'll, you'll, you won't eat, you won't sleep for 24 hours. That's pretty much all you'll do until you're exhausted, until your, your stomach it has a rash on it, until I've seen people hands. I mean, it's sad, but their hands are bleeding because... On the, on the, they are rubbing their hands and laying all the way down on the concrete. And I've seen in front of the temple where they do this, like sidewalk, concrete. And the concrete is polished, smooth, because people are laying on it all day long and polishing concrete. Have you ever seen concrete that's like shiny, polished, like a sidewalk because it's got so much use? I've never seen that. That's crazy. Only in Tibet do people do that, to overcome their sins, to make atonement for the bad things that they've done. They, they bow down and, and prostrate themselves before God. They do some other things too. They like to walk around in circles. they'll circle things. If there's a mountain, they'll circle the mountain. If there's a lake and they consider the lake holy, they'll walk around the lake even if it takes days. If there's a temple or a, a house of someone that's famous or uh, not famous, but like important, famous as far as like Buddhism goes, uh, like the Dalai Lama's house, the, the Patala, they'll circle around. They'll just walk around and around and around. And some of them will even bow down on every step as they're walking around these places. And they'll, they'll, they'll just, their clothes will be just be utter rags. You know, you're, you're literally walking on your hands and knees and getting down on your belly as you're walking miles that way to overcome the sin, the bad things that they've done. They want to do as many good things as they can. And they consider that walking around in circles, they have these prayer wheels like this, Prayer wheel. It has some scripture on it, Buddhist scripture, and then a little weight, and they'll just they'll just spin it around like this. Have you seen people do that? Maybe on TV or National Geographic or Discovery Channel. If you've never been to Tibet, they'll do that. They'll spin these things and walk around in circles for days in order to overcome the sin that's inside of them, to overcome so that the gods might look down upon them and have mercy and allow them to be reincarnated into something better. But do you see it? They're just walking around in circles. Literally. I mean, it it kind of breaks my heart in some way that that they're just walking around, that they think in some way walking around in a circle is going to save them from their sin. When I was in Nepal, there's this temple in Nepal uh, that looks like the face of Buddha sticking out of the ground. It's kind of weird looking. But they'll walk around that as well. And some missionaries, probably Christian, definitely Christian ministries, probably came to that little area and ministered, and I think they gave out shirts. They gave out yellow shirts, and the Buddhist monks all wear yellow shirts, and then the red, uh, like overcloths or whatever it is. And so they had on yellow shirts. But I had—they had to have come from a bunch of Christians because in English, these yellow shirts said, "Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light." <laughs> it's so funny to me because here's these Buddhist monks doing their prayer wheel, wearing, uh, wearing their, their garb. And because it was a yellow shirt, they must have just thought that these people visiting from America or wherever they were from, I have no idea, were just being nice and giving them the yellow shirts. Little did they know that it said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life on these shirts. And so just this image of their walking around, literally in circles, thinking that that is going to save them when it's so close that it's printed on their shirts that Jesus is the way. That you don't need to walk around in circles. You don't need to bow down until you're bloody in order to have salvation. It's through God. Yeah, last week I talked about how karma is, is like this way of, of keep on doing things in, order, in hopes that you might have good things happen to you. But our God is a God of grace. He pulls people out of karma and says, You know what? You think if you do good things, good things are going to happen. You do bad things, really bad things are going to happen to you. But I'll pull you out. God pulls us out when we're sinners, He pulls us out by the love of Jesus Christ and sets us in a high place so that we don't have to bow down and get bloody in front of a Buddhist temple or walk around in circles. Isn't our God awesome? Is he? Yes, he is. I think so, too. And so I want to talk to you about, uh, first on your notes, um, how, how atonement works. I think I left this out. But if you're taking notes, it would, it would be right between, um, I guess it would be kind of part of review. This is part of review of what we're talking about as part of the book of Hebrews. Um, I guess before, let's just talk about the book of Hebrews. Just in case you weren't here last week, who wrote the book of Hebrews? The correct answer in my terminology would be someone in the posse of Paul. Someone had to have known uh, in, in the very last chapter of the book of Hebrews, it says, greet Timothy. You know Timothy, right? He's in the Bible. Who hangs out? I mean, who is Timothy's mentor? Paul. Paul. And so we think, a lot of scholars think, um, that either Paul wrote this book and somehow the address got ripped off, because every other book of the Bible that Paul wrote begins with Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, to Colossians, to the Corinthians, grace and peace to you, right? Every book that he's written begins with that. that that's not here in the book of Hebrews. So either Paul wrote it and that got ripped off, and the wording, and it, maybe Paul wrote it. Um, like, I don't know, it's just the wording is a little different than what he usually writes about. Or some dude named Apollos or Barnabas, who's in the posse of Paul, wrote the book of Hebrews. Just in case you were wondering. It's written to Jewish Christians. Did you know that the first Christians were Jewish? They came, that the, did you know that Jesus was Jewish? And so they came out of the history of, of, of Jewishness. And so the first Christians were Jewish. And so whoever's writing this letter, Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, Some other person that we don't know about in the posse of Paul um, wrote this book to the Jewish Christians, encouraging them, saying, don't turn back to the old promise. Don't turn back to the Old Testament. We have something newer. We have something greater. His name is Jesus Christ. And so that's just a little review of the book of Hebrews that we're covering all this month. Atonement is a cool word. And here is our first use of the whiteboard. Are you ready to take a a few notes? Uh, let's see here. I've got to erase the beautiful The Mill Sunday School. My wife wrote that up here. Wasn't it precious? Uh, I'm going to write it in a funny way. at one mint Atonement. Very rarely in the theological terms will the term have its place of origin as English. Almost all theological terms come from Latin, or Greek or some other cool language but atonement is an English word it means to become at one mint <laughs> and mint is like the noun form of um, like excitement uh, treatment you're being treated with treatment to become at one so this is really the process of becoming at one Atonement, that's where it comes from. I'm not just making this stuff up. It's pretty cool. So atonement is being being one with God himself because we're imperfect beings. How many of us have made a mistake sometime today? (laughs) How many of us have made a mistake sometime in our life? Every hand should go up. So how is it that we could become one with God? How is it that we could become one with a perfect being that created the world? Well, the idea, the theology, we use the term atonement and how that works. And in the Bible, Christianity, the Old Testament, is very clear that there has to be blood. That there has to be blood for atonement. You don't have to walk around in circles. You don't have to um, uh, bow and prostrate yourself before a temple like the Tibetan Buddhists think. Um, But have you heard of the verse, the wages of sin is... The wages of sin is death. It's Romans 6.23, right? What's the other half of the verse? But, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so sin requires some amount of death, some amount of blood to be shed for sins. And, I, and you might ask the question that's kind of the foundational question, why? Why would God require blood sacrifice for sin? Why would God require death as the, as the wages, as the punishment for sin? And I would love to just give you the answer and be like, oh, this is clearly the answer as to why God thinks this way. But I don't know how God thinks. If I told you exactly how God thinks, then you could almost guarantee that I would be wrong because I don't have God figured out. I don't have God in a box because our God doesn't live in the box. He made the freaking box. How about that? Amen. Somebody said amen. I just swore you shouldn't say amen. <laughs> just kidding. That isn't a swear word, is it? Okay, good. Just kidding. All right. Um, turn, if you want to turn, you could turn to Genesis 3.21. I'm just going to read that verse really quickly, uh, if you like flipping around. But keep a finger or a pen or something cool in the book of Hebrews, because we'll be back there. This is uh, chapter 3 of Genesis, when Adam and Eve mess up. There's the tree. God clearly tells them, do not eat of the fruit of this tree. We don't know if it's an apple or an orange or a pear or what kind of fruit it was. Or if it was just a spiritual idea of a fruit. But God clearly tells them, do not eat from this tree. So what do they go do? They eat from the tree. It's a sin. They turn their backs on God. And in Genesis 3.21, it says that the Lord made them garments of skin for Adam and, Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now where do you get skin from? You get skin from an animal. Can you get skin from an animal that isn't dead? I don't think so you 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 probably have to kill the animal <laughs> that would make interesting underwear. <laughs> That's so dirty. That is the dirtiest thing I've ever said in my life. <laughs> um Strapping like a cat on <laughs> I cracked myself up. Do you have a good time in Mill Sunday School? Uh, I hope you do. Hopefully, I don't get in trouble from the boss or whoever. Um, So, the Lord made them garments of skin for Adam and Eve. And so, I'm saying that this is the first time that there's a death of an animal. It may be the first time. Maybe Adam had a steak before he ate the fruit. I don't know. I mean, some people say that there was no death at all before the fall of Adam and Eve. I kind of like that idea. And so, verse 21 would be the first time something had to die, and it had to die to clothe them from their nakedness, to clothe them and cover them up from the sin that they just committed. And so blood sacrifice is the way in which God requires salvation. And today we're going to be looking at the high priest and the high priest's role in these blood sacrifices. So um, the Old Testament has some dudes called uh, priests and high priests. Do you guys know what a priest is? A priest, and some of us might just know what a priest is. Oh yeah, a priest is just a guy that, that does cool stuff. Well, in the Catholic, if we were Catholic, we would know exactly what a priest was. Was anybody raised Catholic, came from a pe- Catholic background? Me too. And so when I was a Catholic little kid, I had a really good idea of what a priest was. The priest was the guy that had the holy garb on, had a, usually a white, big robe. He was the one that preached. He was the one that did communion. He was the one that led the service. And, um, and then even when he wasn't working like when he was just chilling, uh, he would have on the collar. They call it a collar, you know, the little white thing Catholic priests wear. And so his whole life, he didn't marry. The priests don't marry in the Catholic Church. Their whole life is called apart and dedicated to God. And when I was a kid, our, our priest at our uh, chapel was a really cool guy. He was a very, very godly man. And I remember one time um, the priest had done, you know, at the beginning of the, the Catholic Mass, the Catholic service, the priest walks up, Um, and behind him is like the cross, or maybe in front of him is the cross. Behind him are the altar boys with incense and uh, the Bible and other cool stuff. I mean, he comes in with his big garb. He was a big, tall dude. He does the whole service, preaches communion service, um, preaches, um, um, there was songs, choir. I mean, just like any Catholic mass. Have you been to a Catholic mass before, anybody? Probably most of us have been at one point or another. And on the way out, the priest is the first one to walk out. And I clearly remember, as a kid, sitting in the pew, sitting in the altar, or sitting in the pew, um, the furthest one towards the aisle. And the priest walked by and he shook my hand. And as a kid, I was just, wow. And I really felt like, and, and, and really what the priest's job is, is he stands before humans and God. He's like the mediator between, he's, it's his job, his role to stand as a mediator between God and humans. And so as, the, as this man in this big white robe passed by, I put out my hand and he shook my hand and smiled, and I did not want to wash my hand ever again. It was just, to me, it was just so cool, and, and maybe even the actual presence of God was just upon that little interaction. I can still remember it, remember it right now, as clear as day, that this priest just shook my hand on the way out, and it was as a little kid, and I just thought it was really cool. The whole idea, and we don't believe in priests here at New Life Church. We have pastors and reverence, and our opinion on the whole deal is that we don't need someone to mediate between us and God it it creates another little realm that we don't really need but I think the Catholic Church I mean they have that for a reason to help people communicate to God through a mediator I mean I disagree with it personally but the Catholic Church they they just have that character and so as a kid I just remember that time shaking that dudes hand the priests hand and thinking "I I had just been touched by a man of God I thought that was really cool in the Old Testament That's what the priest did. He stood between the living and the dead. He stood up and made sacrifices for people. If you sinned in some way in the Old Testament, you were chilling in the Old Testament, say you uh, stole some stuff, stole some money, uh, and then treated somebody bad and made fun of them and, and just did some bad things, and you wanted to repent, so you'd go to that person and say, I'm sorry I did that, here's their money back. And then before God, you would still have to make atonement and make your sins right before God. And so what you would do is to take a goat, a sheep, a cow, um, a bird, a grain offering, grains, uh, uh, just uh, different things, and you would take that. If it was a big sin, like stealing and lying and making fun of somebody, uh, you would probably bring a cow, something of very high value to you. Back in the ancient culture, they didn't have tons of cash, like in the back pocket. Benjamins and Jeffersons and Washington. They didn't have that. They had cows. That was their, like, income. And so you'd give a cow to somebody and then... You'd get their daughter or whatever you're interacting. <laughs> Lighten up, people. That was a joke. <laughs> and so the point is the matter of the, is that the cows, were, the cows were the source of money. And so you'd bring the cow to. You couldn't just go out into a field and kill it yourself and make retributions for your own sins. You had to do it by a priest. You had to bring it to the temple. The priest had to kill this animal for your sins. Have any of you ever seen the someone killing like a cow? Maybe you grew up on a farm and you've seen a cow or a big animal get slaughtered. Has anybody ever seen that? A few farmer people or or I've seen it on mission trips. Um it's it's pretty gruesome sight, don't you think? If the, those of you that have seen it, I remember as a kid the first time I saw it was it was a dog that got hit by a car and just it was really sad. It was I remember I mean I we were walking down the road playing with this dog and it ran across the road for a squirrel or something and a car came over the hill and it hit it and the dog ran away and we as me and my brother and my mom went to the dog and the dog just kind of laid there and then died and we saw it suffering and I just I mean we all three of us mom me my brother were just weeping and crying that we had seen this dog die we had seen this suffering take place and and these priests when you, when you sin and bring a big animal like a cow uh, to, the, to the priest or a sheep or a lamb to the priest and they cut it and kill it right in front of you, it's a very gruesome thought. And, and it's, a very sad, it's a very sad thought to see an animal dying. Those of you that have seen a, a big animal die, it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a scene, you're, you're at least your first time seeing it. It's just very, there's, there's just this gut reaction to watching this animal suffer, and especially in the Old Testament watching this animal suffer and knowing that you are the reason why this animal is suffering and why the blood is being spilt out. In Leviticus and Numbers, there's all these rules about how a priest has to do it, and they have to cut it up. They have to cut up the meat and sprinkle blood on the altar, and then they take that meat, all the meat from the whole cow, just the good parts, and they, they put it on top of the fire, and they burn it until it's gone. You guys know what a barbecue smells like? A barbecue, and I live in an apartment complex where if somebody's grilling anywhere on the whole apartment complex, everybody can smell it, and you just think, oh, it's summertime, it's delicious food, somebody's having a good time, somebody's picnicking. In the Old Testament, it says that the, that the aroma that came up from the meat being cooked was a pleasing fragrance to God. And I think in the same way that we think of a barbecue and we smell meat cooking, maybe in the Old Testament people thought of their sins being that the sins were somebody's sins were being paid for that a death was being that a death was happening to pay the wages of their sin and then and the bible it talks about how that smell was a pleasing smell to god it's kind of a cool image don't you think i mean kind of a gruesome image of the death but then the, the burning of the meat is like is like a barbecue anybody not like a barbecue how could you not like a barbecue <laughs> Um, Here's some more rules about the priests. A priest just couldn't get up and and put on some jeans and a t-shirt and go out and make some sacrifices. They had very special clothing. There's whole chapters dedicated to what the dudes have to wear in the Bible. All these different layers, all these different jewelry, the hats, the, the, the overgarments, the ephods. They had to wear special stuff. They had to separate themselves from the culture. Priests in the Old Testament couldn't cut their hair. They couldn't uh shave their beards and so they had big long beards they had big long hair they could they weren't allowed to shave their hair or cut their beards they they were not and this might seem um this might seem harsh but if if, if a priest was handicapped but in some physical way he could not be a priest if he's gotten into an accident and you know disformed his arm or something like that or if he was born that way he wasn't allowed to be a priest and in our, in our world in 2007 you know, that that's just mean. Well why would God God not use someone that's handicapped? Does God use handicapped people? You're dang right he does. Of course he does. But as far as representing God Himself, these priests had to be perfect in body. They couldn't have damaged uh damaged arms or, or whatever. They just they had to be perfect in body. They had to be they had to look sharp with all these clothes on. They couldn't just be anybody. You couldn't just apply to be a priest if you're like, I don't know what I'm gonna do, college priest. You couldn't just Sign up to be a priest, you had to be uh, part of the Levitical family. Do you want a quick lesson on uh, Abraham had many sons? Well, you can't see that. I need, the, I need the black. Abraham, who is Abraham's son that we all know? Yeah, Isaac and Ishmael, Isaiah. whoops Isaac and then who was is Isaac's son? Jacob, you guys are good. Of course you knew all that stuff. And then how many sons did Jacob have? He had 12 sons. Three, 7, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. One of those sons was Levi, L-E-V-I. And he uh, was one of the sons. You had to be a son of Levi. You had to be a great, great, great grandson. Or on Levi, you had to trace your history back to the tribe of Levi to be a priest. You had to be part of that of heritage, of that family, to be a priest. And that you just this whole idea of making someone the, the mediator between God and us was very important to God. And if a priest messed up in some way, let's say they got up in the morning and they wore their jeans and their T-shirt and they were making a sacrifice, do you know what the punishment would be for that priest? They would kill him. He would have to die because he treated, as, uh, he treated a, a, a holy thing as unholy. He was just joking around. He got up and and put on his PJs, had his T-shirt and jeans on, and he's making sacrifices, standing between us and God. The punishment was death. And this is all in the Old Testament. It's just, if you read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you'll see this over and over again, how important it is for priests to be set aside from the culture to make the mediation between um, people and God. But ladies and gentlemen, guess what? In the book of Hebrews, it says that all those rules, all those sacrifices, all those bulls, all those lambs, um, sheep, doves that were killed, do you know what? You know how many sins they actually covered? All that blood actually covered no sin. Think about that for a second. Why were there all the rules? Why were why did a priest have to. Do all this stuff and, and wear all this stuff to make a sacrifice. If you read, there's so many rules and regulations about how the animal must be killed, how the blood must be sprinkled, how the food and, and the meat must be burned up. And so why did it really not account for anything? Let me prove it to you. You're, you might be thinking, well, maybe it covered some amount of sin. Look at Hebrews 10, chapter 10, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. This is referring to the Old Testament, to the old promise. And it says that the law, and the law is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's all the ways in which sacrifices and stuff has to be carried out. And it says that the law is only a shadow of the good things are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. It was a part of obeying God. That's what it was all about. It actually didn't make you perfect. If it could, why would they have not stopped being offered? So if, if a sacrifice did make you perfect, then why would why would you have to offer more stuff? Why would you have to kill another goat the next day if you messed up? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder Of sins. Everybody say reminder of sins. That poor cow, that poor sheep being killed and cut open was a reminder. It's suffering as it was, what does the sheep say? Bah, bah. That's a good job. As a sheep is doing that suffering, it's a reminder of your sin. That that blood that's being sprinkled on an altar is a reminder of your sin. Verse 4. Of Hebrews says, Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. And so the question has to be asked and I've already been asking it in, in different forms. Why in the world were all those cows killed, all those sheep killed? I think the, the only answer that I could kind of get to is, is the idea that they were a, a reminder. We had to look upon those animals being slaughtered as in our faith and say, as much as this animal is suffering and dying and paying the price for my sin, God is suffering and dying and, and needs to pay the price for my sin. It's a, It's a it's, it's kind of like this. I thought about this this morning as, a, as I was kind of preparing this lesson. I thought about Adam and Eve, and they sinned. And God made them the garments of skin to, to, to wear. He had to kill an animal to get that skin. What if, back then, God would have just sent Jesus Christ, and we didn't have that whole period of the Old Testament? I was just kind of thinking about this by myself as I was preparing. And I thought, you know what? That wouldn't, that wouldn't have had reminded us of sin. We could look back and look at the old testament and see how these people day after day year after year had to bring animals to the temple of god and watch them suffer for their sins it was a reminder of their sin it was it was this whole process this whole old covenant with god to show that a new covenant was coming and the passage that we began sunday school with talked about how in the old testament there was hope for something new that was coming and that hope is the one the only the high priest of all high priests. His name is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? I do. He's he's an awesome guy. And let me tell you why he's so awesome. Let me tell you why he's the high priest over all high priests. And this is part of your notes. If you're writing notes, write down that he was a perfect priest. He was a perfect priest. That would be point one under Jesus as the high priest. That he was a perfect priest. Did you know that humans, no human, even if they're a really cool high priest, uh, is perfect? Did you know that I'm not perfect? Maybe you're thinking, oh, he's got to be perfect. He's so cool. No, I am cool, but I'm not perfect. (laughs) You can just ask my wife. She'll tell you. (laughs) I'm not perfect. Um, A high priest, or any priest, would have to make sacrifices for himself before making a sacrifice for someone else. In fact, out of all the priests, there was a high priest. And one of his roles was to make sacrifices for all the other priests. Did you know that? Because a priest isn't perfect. And so the priest, the mediator between us and God, had to make sacrifices for himself in order that he could be kind of made perfect before God, before he took your sacrifice and made it. But Jesus is a perfect priest. He doesn't need to make sacrifices in order to make a sacrifice to be the sacrifice for us. So point one is that he's a perfect priest. Point two is that he himself, maybe he himself, comma, God is the sacrifice. He himself is the sacrifice. And he's not just a human being. He is God himself. Did you know that? As Christians, it's core to our doctrine that we believe that Jesus wasn't just a good guy. He wasn't just a good teacher. He claimed to be God himself and the core fundamental beliefs of christianity says that jesus was god himself he made a sacrifice he was a perfect priest and what he sacrificed was not just another animal like in the old testament he sacrificed himself he sacrificed his own body and he was god that that's what makes jesus the high priest over all other high priests don't you think he's cool he's perfect he's really cool turn to your neighbor and say Jesus is all right with me. Just like the psalm. You know it, right? Let me, let me provide for you icing on the cake of, of this whole idea of Jesus as the perfect high priest sacrifice. The icing is called Melchizedek. Have you heard of Melchizedek before? Do you know who he is? You're probably like, uh, I've heard the name, but I have no idea where he's at in the Bible. He's in Genesis. If you want to turn there, you can Genesis 14. It's not a very big passage, but don't forget to keep your finger or a pin or something uh, in the book of Hebrews because we'll turn right back to there. But Genesis 14 talks about Melchizedek. He's kind of a random dude in a random passage. Genesis 14, uh, specifically verse 18, 18, 19, 20. <clears throat> so Abraham's chilling. God's about to kill uh, all of Sodom, Gomorrah. And it says in verse 18 that Melchizedek, king of Salem. Isn't that a cool name? Don't you want to name your boy Melchizedek? That'd be sweet. Or even girl. I mean, it's such a cool name. It's either or, in my opinion. <laughs> then Melchizedek, the king of Salem. You know, where, you know what Salem is? Salem is ancient Jerusalem. Think about this image real quick. Before This is Genesis chapter 14. This is before Moses. This is before David. This is before the temple. This is before Moses. This is before all that. There's just some dude named Abraham. We know him. We love him. He's chilling and, and, and walking around. And it says, Melchizedek, king of Salem. And Salem is going to become Jerusalem. That's just kind of a cool image. King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham saying, blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Be blessed God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then it says that Abraham gave him a tenth of everything that he had to this random king of Salem. But it says that he was a priest of the Most High God. And let me tell you why that's so cool. Because in the book of Hebrews, where you could turn back to Hebrews just kind of, because uh, we're kind of done with that passage. I mean, that's really all there is about Melchizedek in in the Bible as far as far as far as his story. And so in the book of Hebrews... The term priest, did you know the term priest is used 37 times in this small book? Is that a lot? That's a whole lot. 37 times to use the the word priest in one book is a big deal. The the he uses whoever wrote this uses the term Melchizedek quite a few times to say that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. And let me tell you why that's icing on the whole cake idea of Jesus as the perfect creator dude. Let me tell well, first let me tell you who Melchizedek is not. He's not um, you know the Mormons believe that the order. What do they believe? Yo, yo, what's the order of Melchizedek? Do you know? Bruce knows. Bruce, what's the order of Melchizedek in, in the Mormon Church? <laughs> Sweet. So you like them or don't like? Them? <laughs> All right, so in the Mormon Church, the Melchizedek is like this order, this special priesthood in the Mormon Church that they think he restored restored something. Anyways, that maybe you've heard of Melchizedek through that. Maybe that's just a random rabbit trail. But let me tell you who Melchizedek really is. He's the guy that comes to Abraham. Melchizedek. (laughs) Forget how to spell it. So Abraham, give Melchizedek. If you don't know why everybody's laughing, it's because I don't know how to spell anything, so I just kind of try, and they laugh. That's just what happens. Um, Melchizedek comes to Abraham, blesses Abraham, and then Abraham gives him one, let's see, one-tenth of all of his cash. Is money a big deal in the Bible? Everybody say, "Mm mm-hmm. Money's a really big deal in the Bible. You know, Jesus uses money stories more than any other kind of story because people, we know what money's about. We know that when you have to pay a whole bunch of money to, to get your car because you just parked in the Colorado Springs airport for three days and you have to pay almost 30 bucks, you're ticked. God knows that. You know, if, the, if you lose your ticket, the maximum price for, for is $8. I could have thrown the ticket in the trash. Instead, I was a nice honest man, and I gave him the ticket, and he gives me a bill for 30 bucks. I should have just lost the ticket. <laughs> it wouldn't have been honest, though. went wouldn't have been honest. All right. Um, <laughs> anyways, Melchizedek uh, comes to Abraham, blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth of all that he has. Now, here's why that's a big deal, because this whole idea of the tithe, Have you heard of the tithe before? It's something that I do. It's something that most of us in here probably do. We give a tenth of all we make, all our sweet cash that we make throughout the week when we work in our job. I do, lots of you do, give a tenth of that to your home church. You give that to New Life Church as a gift to God himself because money is an important thing and the love of money is a really bad thing. So we give it away. Lots of us tithe in here. Um, And so Abraham gave a tithe to this priest of the most high God named Melchizedek. Now, what's so interesting about that is that the book of Hebrews picks up upon that idea and says this, going back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these 12 tribes. So if you're Jewish, you come from one of these 12 tribes down here, uh, like the tribe of Joseph or Reuben or one of the, any other of the 12 people. And you when, you, when you did your sacrifice and brought your sacrifice to uh, the priest, the priest was in the order of Levi. You would bring a tenth of all that you had to the priest. Because the priest didn't have any land. The priest couldn't be a farmer. He was, his job was to make retributions for sins. And so he was the priest. That was his job. He was supported by all of the other tribes, giving them a tenth, a tenth to the priests of Levi. Now, the book of Hebrews, am I losing you? Are you okay? Okay. Let me move that so you can actually see. So Levi, um, so all these people give a tenth to Levi. So that's the tenth thing again, one-tenth dollar sign. They're giving their dollars, one-tenth of all their dollars, to Levi. Now, the book of Hebrews picks up upon this idea and says that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. He's above the order of these Levite priests of the Old Testament because it talks about in Hebrews how Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all he had. And Abraham, you know, Abraham's, I guess these guys were like in Abraham's, uh, (laughs) what did you say? Posse? No, they were his kids, and so they were, <laughs> they were descendants. I was going to use a, a bad word, um, uh, but this is okay. This is Sunday school, right? So they were kind of in his body, in his, in his loins. Oh, great word, in his loins. So, as <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble, I know it. Um, uh, so the point being is that when Abraham gave a tenth. It was almost like Levi giving a tenth to Melchizedek. And so the, the icing on the cake that the book of Hebrews thinks is a really important idea is that Jesus is not in line with all these Levites of the Old Testament. He is of a bigger line. He is of the line of Melchizedek. And he is of the line where the Levites gave Jesus through the line of Melchizedek a tenth of all they had. And that's a pretty sweet image, don't you think? It's kind, I mean, it has to do with money. Money's a big deal to people. And so um, let me, um, I think I want to, uh, 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 I think what I want, there's the last question in your notes. Can you lose your salvation? Everybody say, that's a good question. I mean, it's a really good question, right? Because if you're a Christian, can you lose your salvation? Yes or no? I mean, it's kind of a big deal. It's a big question. Um, And I don't, it's kind of like a can of worms. You know what a can of worms is? It's like a rotting can of worms. You open it up and it kind of stinks. But I don't think it... I mean, it's a theological discussion point, but some people get heated about it and that it's like opening a can of worms. It's not. It's a fun question to discuss as long as you have your head on straight and it's uh, good to debate one side or the other. You know there's churches on both sides. Our Baptist friends talk about eternal security, how you can never lose your salvation if you have it. But then our Wesleyan, our Methodist friends... Anybody have Methodist friends? They will say that you can. It is possible to lose your salvation through random means. And so there's churches on both sides. There's theologies on both sides. But I say all that just to get you excited because we don't have time to talk about it. We'll talk about it next week. Um, I want to close with, with uh, a passage in Hebrews. Read this for you. But I want to let you out just a hair early because today's a big day in New Life Church's history, right? Mr. Uh, not Mr. Pastor Brady Boyd is going to talk to us. And um, has anybody had the chance to meet him yet? A couple random people. I got to meet him. He was in here on, was it Tuesday night? He was in here. Pastors and elders of New Life Church were in here, and he was just answering questions. Guy's sharp. Can I say that I really, really like him? He has a vision for New Life Church that, that transcends where we've gone in the past, where we've been in the past. He wants us to bring us somewhere into the future of New Life Church, and this vision that I believe has given him and the pastoral selection committee believes that he's the one i mean they selected him right that's how the process works so he'll preach three times and then at the end of those three sundays what's three sundays from now 27th um we'll get to is it monday or sunday they'll explain all this i don't know what i'm doing wasting my time explaining it to you because they'll explain it really well and better than i ever could you'll get the chance to either vote if you're a member if you've tithed remember this whole tithing thing Kind of important, still today, if you've given money to New Life Church last year, then you're considered a this year a voting member, and you'll just get to vote thumbs up or thumbs down for Brady Boyd. You won't get to vote in another candidate. It's not like an election. It's a spiritual election like, um, like we, we talked about last, last Sunday morning. And um, so I just said, we'll so we end a little early so you can get a seat, because I think it's a little crowded in there. And um, I just kind of like him. You know, at the end of his talk. He just said, I want to tell you something. And he stood right here and he said two words. He said, I'm sorry. And as the pastors and elders were in here, I started crying. They started crying. Because just two words. He said, I'm sorry. And he knew this just the past that this church has, has been through these last nine months. And and for some reason he said, He didn't cause any of that. You know, he's kind of the guy that, that might help us into the future and lead us in a direction and have vision for this church. And he he said he was, a, he was sorry. And that for some reason, those two words just hit me in all nine months of the, you know, as, as a pastor at New Life Church, all the, you know, in some ways, embarrassment of saying that I'm a pastor of New Life, you know, that he was saying he was sorry for that. And I don't need to be embarrassed that I work for New Life. I work for New Life freaking church. It's a sweet church. It's an amazing church. It's a church that's growing. It's a church where God himself is our leader. And so as we, as we either elect or don't elect Barry Boyd, he's just a man. He's just a man. God is our leader. And God is our high priest. Jesus is our high priest. So if you want to read along, read along with me Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 says that if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people. If perfection could have been obtained, it can't be. Why then was there still need for another priest to come in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there also must be a change of law. He whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served the altar. He's talking about Jesus and his line, this, this, this idea that he's in the line of Melchizedek spiritually. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, uh, tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Jesus wasn't supposed to be a priest because he wasn't a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah, right? Just kind of thinking about it in the natural form. Verse 15 says, And what we have said is more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become priest, not on the basis of regulation to his ancestors, but on the basis of power, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, For it is declared, you are priests forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation has been set aside. It was weak and useless. The whole thing, the whole priesthood, the whole animals getting killed was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath. But he became priest with an oath When God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Don't you believe Jesus is is a better covenant? Me too. He's a perfect God being sacrificed on the cross for our sins. Let's just pray to him. Jesus, we just thank you right now. For your sacrifice, that image, it's almost gruesome image of you on the cross, suffering, suffering like an animal on a cross, being killed and slaughtered like an animal. But God, that's the representation of of our sins being atoned for once and for all because you were perfect. You were God on that cross as you suffered. And so Jesus, we can't do anything but just thank you right now. Thank you for that salvation. God, as we leave here and we, when we get uh, into the service and Brady Boyd preaches to us, God, I just pray that you will open our hearts and minds to what you alone want to do, Jesus Christ. We open our hearts and minds to what you alone want to do. Your will be done, Father. And So we thank you, we praise you, and we leave here rejoicing. Everybody says, Amen. amen.